0: So, you know, I hope that this guided meditation was not too kind of disturbing for some of you, you know, because a certain amount of disturbance can be really very helpful, you know, to kind of uh, disrupt old ways of thinking things. But if it's too much at once, it can also be counterproductive, you know, because the mind tends to shut down or go to sleep. So, whatever happened for you, you know, we have to just, uh, you know... take those tools and then, uh, you know, know for ourselves how much to kind of bite off, Do not bite off more than we can chew. And then if the mind just, uh, you know, kind of um, shuts down, then it might be even a skillful uh, thing, you know, because sometimes uh, that's the only thing what the mind can do to just um, close off. And, and that's what trauma is all about and there's a great intelligence in trauma you know, the trauma response but then if we get stuck on that uh, shutting down then that would be again counterproductive so then if we see that that's happening and then slowly but surely you know kind of uh, liquefy that approach you know when the mind freezes because something is too much then just gently and consistently, uh, you know, unfreezing it, melting it again. And that's what the practice is all about, you know, to slowly but surely penetrate and and interrupt and work with those old patterns. Because if we are not working with those patterns, we we stay in the past. So we have to bring the past into the present, and through bringing the past into the present, we slowly integrate it and then the past becomes the present. That means, you know, things become fluid again and the flow of life can continue and we will have new experiences, you know, whereas if we constantly repeat the past then there's no, there's no change happening or there is change happening but we are not really open to it. And, uh, you know, Maranasati is, is one way how we can uh, do this kind of work. And Maranasati is actually, in the Theravada school, it's one of the so-called four protective meditations. And I find it quite interesting because one wouldn't naturally think, you know, that the meditation on death is considered a protection. But it is considered a protection, a protection, you know, from our own ignorance and from the ignorance of others. So those four protective meditations, I'm going to go over them. They are not like protective amulets, you know, which we can have or, you know, kind of say we, we, we know how, how to do it. And then they will protect us from difficulty. But it's more the giving us a different outlook on our difficulties and with... Because of that, they are protecting the mind from greed, hatred and delusion and at the same time also protecting us from the mind of others which are, you know, motivated by greed, hatred and delusion. And that's why this kind of meditation is a protective meditation because it keeps things in context and if we can keep things in context and not take them so personally, then there's a way, you know, for movement and life is movement and if we can allow that movement then things will resolve themselves you know and the the ultimate uh resolving of everything in the buddhist teaching is nibbana really you know it's it's the deathless how it's also called there's no more fear of death because it has been deeply understood that uh, everything is dependent on everything else and there is no independent separate things, but it's processes. And we have very little control you know, over those processes, but we can understand how they work and then we can have a certain influence, you know, how we're going to encourage our body and mind in which direction to flow and in which direction not to flow. So those um, four protective meditations. The first one is recollection of Buddha. The Buddha as as a historical being and at the same time also Buddha as our own capacity for awakening, for awareness. So that's the first one. Then the second one is metta, Loving-kindness meditation as an antidote to ill-will, for example, or depression of the many kind of more heavy, dark mind states. And at the same time, also, it's the recommended uh, kind of behavior, you know, of someone who is practicing. And the third one is a suba. Suba. In Pali means beautiful, and Asuba means contemplation of that which is not really only beautiful. And That means, you know, again, looking at the body in a certain way we usually don't look at. Usually we just see the body from outside, and some bodies we think they are very attractive, or we do a lot about our own bodies to make them more attractive. And this kind of meditation gives us a guidance, you know, to look at our body For example, imagining, you know, that the body is cut open and then looking inside and what we see then, you know, isn't really ugly, but it's also not that attractive, I would say. So that's an an antidote, you know, to getting lost in um, greed and lust. And that supports, you know, us looking uh, and practicing in in a way with uh, more energy and not being constantly distracted in that way. And then the fourth one is the recollection of death. And that's considered, you know, to give us a sense of urgency for practice because, as you know, Diane also mentioned, you know, we don't know, uh, you know, next lifetime we might not be born as a human being. And, you know, being born as a human being is, is traditionally considered the most fortunate birth in terms of practice because being born as a human being usually, you know, the balance between um, difficulty and, 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 and enjoyment is usually like that, you know, that we can, we have both, we know about both and our lives are not completely wrapped up only in difficulties but also not like completely uh, oblivious because we have so much pleasure. So it's a a certain good uh, starting position for feeling a motivation to practice. That's why the human birth is considered so fortunate. And uh, so it's considered a, a remedy for heedlessness. So, you know, getting lost, for example, in what's called in the scriptures, the pride of youth or the bride of health. I'm thinking and it's always gonna be that way. So it's it's a it's a kind of a wake up call and it's not about, you know, saying oh it's all bad and it's all hopeless. No, it's not. It's just saying see both, you know, see both sides. And then come to the middle, you know, because they're both existing at the same time and that's very much, you know, uh What the practice kind of, I think, enables us is to be able to live with paradox, you know, not just with black and white, but there's a huge gray zone in between, you know, which is neither this nor that or both. And, you know, because we have been brought up to think in a dualistic language, there is little kind of, uh, there's not so many words, you know, about that which is between the two extremes. And then, you know, we have different methods like art, for example. Poetry is very well capable, you know, to speak about that, which can't be named with words, which is between the lines, you know. And that's exactly uh, what we want to kind of become more aware of, you know, that there's a a whole spectrum between black and white. There's a whole spectrum between uh, life and death. And there's a whole spectrum between you know, kind of um, that which is uplifting and that which is like completely, you know, depressing us. And being able to see that spectrum and also between painful and pleasant. And that's why we need to kind of train our minds in those seven factors of awakening so that the mind become powerful enough and sensitized enough so that the mind can actually recognize that spectrum in between black and white. Because that's not so easy to see, you know. As the two extremes, they stick out like you know, Thor's arms. But everything in between, we need to put in a little bit more focus to really relate to it. And if we learn that in the meditation, you know, through so paying attention to very subtle objects like the breath, then through that the mind becomes trained. That's like going to the gym, you know, and lifting certain weights. For us in the meditation is paying attention to that which is difficult to see. That which we normally don't pay attention to. That makes the mind incredibly strong. Because in, in order for the mind to be able to stay with that which is more difficult to see, which is kind of hidden in plain sight, it's not secret, But we overlook it, you know. And then again and again we have to bring the mind back from its habitual stories and patterns and, and point it back, you know, point it back to the breath or point it back to the body scan or whatever we are doing. That makes the mind strong, you know, because letting go is something, you know, we need to train ourselves in. And if we do that consistently, then the it becomes ever more easy for the mind to do it, you know. And then the next thing would then also be, you know, to live accordingly, to really integrate it into our lives. And then, you know, we, we really make it our own if we start to embody it also, that knowing, you know. And... uh so the recollection of Buddha and the metta meditation, they are, you know, kind of showing us the potential of a human life. You know, we can be just like the Buddha, we can also realize full awakening. And metta, you know, shows us that the mind can be really, you know, can, can be vast and immeasurable, open, the four Brahma Viharas, metta, Karuna, Mutita and Upeka, and uh, Diane mentioned that today, you know, that's called the immeasurable mind states, because they are really, they are without limit. And that's also a potential of the mind, which, you know, we can uh, train and we can get to know it and we can develop the trust, you know, that this is possible. So that's the first two show us the potential of our minds. And then the other two, the Asuba practice and the recollection of death, shows us more the limitation of a human life. You know. And both of them are really important because they are realities of human existence. And we It's good for us to know that, you know. So we don't take it so personal and we see, okay, you know, that's the way it is. And there's a lot of room there for us, you know, to move and to to practice and to make mistakes, you know, and then come back from those mistakes by reflecting. And the first to elevate the mind and the other to ground the mind and... Both of them, you know, are helpful for letting go, to uplift the mind and then also and sometimes to just ground the mind. And we have to just look at our own practice, you know, at a particular time, at a particular day and see, you know, what do we need? Like, you know, when we have a certain illness, we go to the medicine cupboard and then we take out, you know, for headache, we take a headache medicine and for If you need some eye drops, we don't take the headache medicine, we take eye drops. And the same is with the meditation. It's a whole toolkit. And according to our mind states and what's at stake at the moment for us, we pull out like a certain practice and use it. And then, you know, we do something else. Whatever is, uh, works for us. And... uh, They are all tools for for transformation and you know transforming obstacles into opportunities and you know I I very much like that saying you know the the obstacles are not in the way but the obstacles are the way you know there is not a single so-called obstacles which can't be used as an opportunity for investigation and and through that uh, for transformation. And uh, these four, you know, protective meditations, they remind us of what's truly possible and what is real, you know. It is possible because it is real. Because really, you know, the Buddha was a human being, just like us, and he just has been putting in consistent, you know, practice over many, many lifetimes, and then it bore very, very good fruit. And the same is possible for us. And you know, and with the meta practice, for example, another you know, man can be very, very contracted, out of fear or out of greed or something, and can feel like very, very kind of hard and impenetrable. But then, you know, if we are using the practice, and uh, Diane said, you know, that the four Brahma-Vihara practices can be compared, like, with the sun, you know. And then the sun at noon, for example, the metta, which shines at the contraction of some anger or some, you know, ill will we have against somebody, for example, or against ourselves, you know, if we then can shine the light of matter, the sun of matter onto that contracted frozen state, just gently, you know, it starts to open up and it starts to, you know, radiate and the the meta practice is a skillful means to encourage that natural limitlessness of the mind which is not something you know we have to gain or win but it's 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 naturally there but just sometimes the mind contracts and that's through using these skillful means of matter it it just gives way again and opens up and then you know whatever has been happening can be held in a much bigger space and then, you know, I love very much like that uh, Sutta. It's, I think it's called the Sutta of the Lamp of Salt. You know, if you have a lump of salt and you put it in a small cup, when you drink that water, it doesn't taste very well. You know, it doesn't taste very good and it does not quench our thirst. But if you put that same lump of salt, like in a, in a very, very big container, like say Lake Tahoe or something, you won't taste it. You know, you can drink that water. And the same is, you know, with the immeasurable mindsets. It's not that the experiences are gonna necessarily change immediately, but we can hold them in A, B, C, a bigger container. And because of that, you know, we can allow them to be what they are and give them the space to naturally change. Because if we are contracting around it, we also, um, you know, we, we try to kind of out of fear, out of aversion, you know, we try to kind of control it. And through that, we nail it down and it's not going to move on, you know. So it's going to bring the same thing. We attract the same experience back and back and back again. But as soon as we can open up, then we have much more capacity to see it from many different sides and allow that natural flow again to set in. Yes, and the super practice, I was already saying, you know, it's like looking at the body in, in a very different way than usual. Looking at it from inside or, for example, you know, looking at the body just in terms of the body parts. That's traditionally it's 42 parts, but it can also be made very simple just with three skin, flesh and bones. And also looking at the body in terms of the elements which, you know, when was uh, doing uh, today also with us. And uh, yeah, those four protective meditations, they help us to develop the courage, you know, and, and the confidence to meet things as they are. And uh, you know, give us that that courage and and that confidence through you know using those practices over time, and then you know, basically, certain truths will become available to us, which we normally don't see because we maybe don't have the right guidance how to look at our experience. Because all of those four practices, you know, they guide us to look at our experiences or at certain features of our experience in a particular way. And in the beginning, you know, when we hear it for the first time these kind of instructions, we think, what's the big deal, you know? but through repetition, you know, look doing that, it's accumulative and it is a big deal really because it's it's a very, it goes against the grain, you know, of looking at life. And that's why it's called to be protective. So it's, it, you know, it, it does uh, reinforce wholesome mind states and it does work to dissolve unwholesome mind states and uh, you know there's two different ways how we can use this recollection of death and also the other protective meditation we can either do them you know at the beginning of our daily meditation you could just do like 10 minutes Uh, Recollection of death, and then continue with your own meditation, or you can do it just as a main object of meditation from time to time. And it's grounding and nourishing at the same time, and it shows us, as I said before, the limitations. Yes, you know, this body is not going to live forever, it's going to die one day, and that's really grounding and sobering. And then on the other hand, it shows us, well, this body, you know, the elements, they are not really my elements. I'm not really kind of, I'm not really dying, you know. It's just that all of those bits and pieces which were coming together and were called, you know, me for a few years, they actually, they all go back to nature. And they are actually part of this planet. And therefore, you know, I am actually the planet. I'm actually a bit of planet walking around, you know. And within seven years, you know, all of the elements in this body are exchanged. And when we have been eating today and drinking, you know, we were taking in water element, earth element, fire element. And then when we go to the bathroom, we we let go of some of that again. So it's like we are not really ever cutting the umbilical cord to the planet. We are in constant exchange it's a it's a it's a process you know it's a constant give and take and now, at this time you know in our history we we start to wake up to the fact you know through the climate crisis that we have to live that way we have to understand and live from that place that the planet isn't outside of us. It's not like a stage on which we are walking around. No, we are the planet. And this kind of meditation you know, on death and also on the elements, which I will guide us in after this talk, You know, they're very, very important, uh, skillful means. They're really protecting us from continuing to go into the wrong direction, really thinking you know that technology alone can save us from this obviously not you know and uh, so we have to really ground ourselves in the direct experience of what these bodies really are this is the planet and then you know we can use technology but use it with wisdom and not being used by it And, yeah, I think this this kind of mind training, you know, which really shorts us into a different level of consciousness where we are really living from that place that we are not separate Mm -hmm. from the planet. And that's that shift, you know, we need to make as a global civilization if we want to continue to stay here. If we don't make that shift, then it's not looking very very promising I'd say. Which is also okay, I suppose. But we should try first, you know, not <laughs> give up before we have really tried. So and you know not to underestimate, you know, if we are setting free those old patterns, it can you know free up a lot of energy and a lot of intelligence you know which is already there the innate intelligence of nature which we are part of nature we can participate in that but first you know we have to make some space because the teacup you know my first teacher Ajahn Dasa, he was always teaching like in the morning at five thirty, because he said because then the tea cup is not full yet you know if he would teach in the evening the cup already full nothing can fit in anymore and i think with us it's more like you know our cups are so full with so much unnecessary information that we we don't have space for that which really is critically important at this time to make some space for you know and that's why this kind of the protective meditations, in particular, I think the meditation on death and the meditation on the elements, because it's so connected, you know, to understand that these bodies they are riding animals for our consciousness which we have borrowed from nature. And they don't belong to us, you know. We we need to take care and we can use them. To have experiences, and through those experiences, you know, we we can develop more wisdom and compassion. So they they are for us here to use, you know. But it would be uh, very advisable, you know, to use them with more space and around it, and do not get so lost, you know, in in. Uh, pleasant and unpleasant, because that's really very much to our detriment, you know. Consumer society, which is like wedded, you know, to pleasant and unpleasant, uh, has been, you know, the the repercussions are profoundly unpleasant. It has not delivered, you know, what what we thought. And that's okay to make mistakes, you know, that's how we learn and grow. But when we start to really have it written all over the wall, it'd be really important to do what we can, you know, to clear out some of the stuff, you know, which is really completely outmoded and outdated and not working. Yeah, so I think... On this note, you're know, going to follow up with uh, a guided meditation on the elements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.